So Hebrews chapter 13 tonight, we're going to look at verses 1 through 25. Hebrews 13, 1 through 25. In a study I'm calling Acceptable Service. So we work through this passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this church and the chance to gather together as believers and be encouraged by your word. Thank you, Lord, that it's living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between our soul and our spirit. Thank you also, Lord, for the promise that we have in this passage, Lord, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we know that the same Lord that loved us so much to die for, for us on the cross is the same Lord who loves us and walked with us daily today. And we know, Lord, that you have a good and a perfect plan for each one of our lives. Pray, Lord, that you would work that out and, and also reveal to us those good works that you have ordained for us to walk in. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm pretty confident that everybody here tonight has a standard of acceptable and unacceptable service, right? You know that just by going out to eat somewhere or something like that, right? Or, or you take your car to an auto shop or something and they dent it up. I mean, that's obviously that is unacceptable to you. God has a standard of, of acceptable and unacceptable service as well. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 tells us this. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, based on the fact of God's mercies, what he has done for us, what he's provided for us, we have an acceptable response to God. It's a required response, and that is to present our lives to Him as a living sacrifice. We're to walk in holiness, set apart from this world, living for the Lord. The writer of Hebrews also says that God has a standard of, of acceptable service, and that is at the end of chapter 12, where we left off last week in verses 28 and 29. I'll read to you again. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So our reasonable response to the fact that Jesus loved us and he died on the cross for us and through our faith in him we now have this eternal kingdom that we're going to receive, that we're citizens of that kingdom, we have a response. And our response should be that we walk in acceptable service to the Lord. What is that acceptable service? Well, the writer says it's to walk in reverence and godly fear. Simply, it means to heed, uh, hear God's word and heed what he says. To hear and to do as a good servant would. Now, what does that, li- what does that look like practically? How does that play out in our life practically as we walk with the Lord? Well, that's something that we learn as we walk with the Lord day by day, right? As his servant. Where Jesus is our Lord, we're his servant, and we, as we arise in the morning, the Lord speaks to us and gives us instructions. But there are certain passages in the Bible that help us and clarify to us and give us pointers as we walk with the Lord. And we have such a passage tonight as we finish the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews continues on after that thought of acceptable service. And he goes on by giving us various admonitions to serve God with acceptable service. We're going to focus on those things. So as we finish this chapter of Hebrews tonight, we'll see two things. Number one, the admonitions of acceptable service. 
And number two, the benediction and farewell of God's faithful servant. And so first in verses 1 through 17, we see the admonitions for acceptable service. The writer goes on and says, let brotherly love continue. And so love is supposed to be a characteristic of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul was the one who said, faith, hope, and what? The greatest of these is love in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 John tells us in 4, 7, and 8 that God is love. And those who are born of God will love. Those who do not love, John says, are not born of God. For, for God is love. And so what he's saying there is if you're born again, if you have God living in you and one of his chief attributes is love, well then that will be a characteristic from your life. Now we need to clarify what, what we mean by love. Love means to choose to surrender to the Lord and follow his will and, and to love those that the Lord says to love. Sometimes it's difficult to love people. Now the writer uses a specific word for love here. He talks about brotherly love. This is where we get our word Philadelphia from. This love speaks of a deep friendship and a deep fellowship. It's seen in the body of Christ, in the church, as we relate to one another. Like as we send Caitlin off. You know, it's, it's a friendship, it's a closeness that the Lord knits together as we walk with the Lord. And those the writer says, let that continue. So they were already doing it. But they were starting to grow weary and discouraged in that through their persecutions and suffering. Sufferings and persecutions are one tool of the enemy, right? To get us to have contention with one another, right? As we're kind of grumpy and are hangry. I, as my, my kids learn, learn the word hangry now, you know. So now when they're all like grumpy, like, what's going on? I'm hangry, Dad. I'm hangry. Like, you can't use that. You're not old enough yet kind of thing, right? I'm fasting today. I'm hangry. Don't talk to me. Well, it's not loving. And so, or, you know, whatever it might be. But we're to continue in this means that we're to pursue it and we're to make the effort to. So that deals, first of all, with our heart and with our actions. If I'm going to walk in friendship with somebody, then I need to be careful how I treat others, right? I need to control my mouth. I need to control how I minister to others. And and sometimes I need to just lay down my pride and, and love others that sometimes can be difficult to love. Kind of a funny saying, but it's, sometimes it's kind of true, sadly. It says, to be in heaven with the Lord will be glory, but to love some on the earth, well, that's a different story. And so, you know, but, but the Lord does. He gives us that grace to love others. And as we walk with the Lord, as we, as we focus on him, the Lord gives us that love for others. The writer goes on and says, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So now the writer warns the readers against having stranger danger. He says, don't have stranger danger. So that's something that we, right, in the world they teach us the opposite, which is probably a good thing, but this is talking about something different. This admonition focuses on hospitality, which is another vital part of the Christian life and also of the Christian church. It was essential in the first century church. You see, as we saw earlier in this book, many of the believers had lost their homes. They lost all their goods. Many who came from faraway lands to Jerusalem there at Pentecost got saved and they didn't return. They stayed there. And then they were persecuted. They were pushed out of Jerusalem, right? And many of them were wandering around. They got plugged into a church, but they didn't have much food. They didn't have a place to stay. And so believers were to minister to them. They were to take them in. 
and encourage them and help them. The missionaries would travel from village to village, house to house. You know, and, and, and often what they would do is they would come to a town, and the first thing that they would do when they came to a town was they would find the believers. And the believers would take them in, and they would minister, and then they would go on. And we see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. So now the writer says, hey, don't forget to entertain strangers. So they heard, hey, so-and-so's coming to town. Oh, I'm busy this weekend. We've got a wedding or something like that. Right? He said, hey, don't forget to do that. It's important. Continue to do that. And by doing that, you actually bless others, and you, you yourself are blessed. He points back to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. He says, remember Father Abraham. He actually unwittingly, he didn't even know, but he actually entertained angels. There in Genesis 18, three men came to Abraham's house, and he saw them there. He's like, whoa, and he starts preparing this meal. Well, it turns out that two of the men were angels, and the other was the Lord, Jesus, before his incarnation, before he came to earth. And the Lord there, you know, revealed to Abraham his plan and what he was going to do at Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham was blessed. So he blessed others, but in, and in turn, he was also blessed. So continue in hospitality. That's a way that we live out this godly life. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated, since you yourself are also the body, or since you are the body also. The believers were encouraged to remember those believers who are imprisoned and mistreated for sharing the gospel. So people didn't like Christians in those days. And it was against the law to preach, and many of them were, were put in jail for doing so. Well, these believers were to think about them. They were to go and to minister to them. And just like in some countries, people didn't receive food in jail. So the only way that they stayed alive was other believers would come and they would minister to them and they would give them support. We see that in the life of Paul. As Paul would come and they would bring him certain things, you know, they would be ministered to. And the writer says, hey, continue in that. Show compassion because we're all the body of Christ. We should put ourselves in their shoes. Think about as if you were chained with them since you're the body. And so when one member suffers, we all suffer in a sense. There's a connection and a closeness to the church. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now, the writer now turns his attention from the relationship between Christ and his church, the marriage Christ and his church, and now he puts it on physical marriage between a man and a woman. He says, the marriage relationship is honorable among all. In other words, it is to be held in high regard among all of God's saints. It was one of God's first ordinances that he established when he created man. He ordained and created marriage, and the writer says, it's a blessed thing. It was not to be looked at as a burden or a hindrance, but it's to be looked at as a blessing and honor. The marriage bed is undefiled. This refers to God's approval of the married couple's sexual relationship. God has blessed and given his approval on sex in the context of a biblical marriage. But on the other hand, the writer is clear that God will both judge fornicators and adulterers. Fornication refers to any sexual behavior outside of the context of marriage. This could refer to things mentally, visually like pornography, or physically like homosexuality. Adulterers refers to those who are having sexual behavior with another outside of the context of their marriage. And so the writers were clear. He says, hey, don't be deceived. God will judge. There will be discipline. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. 
Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now the writer moves on to the man's heart, to our heart. He says, beware of covetousness. Covetousness is the desire and the pursuit of what you don't have. Warren Wiersbe says, the word covetous literally means the love of money. But it can be applied to love of more than our, our love for anything, really. It's a desire and the pursuit of, of really anything. The opposite of covetousness is contentment. And contentment is to walk in God's will and to trust and rest in what he's given us is what he wants for us. This is to be the basis of the believer's relationship with the Lord. We're to be content. And as we walk with the Lord, we realize that he's with us and that he's a good father and that he'll provide for us. And if he's provided for us and we're in his will, well, then we should be content because we know that we are where the Lord has us. We can have this more and more, a greater contentment more and more as we walk with the Lord because we realize his closeness with us and, and trust in him. Once again, to turn back to the Apostle Paul, Paul said, hey, I'm content where I am. And he also taught us that godliness with contentment is great gain. And so he exemplified it by his life. Paul says, hey, I'm satisfied with what I have. And you read like, you know, I read Paul's life and think, mm, wow, that's tough, man. You know, he talked about all his persecutions and beatings. But you know what? He realized that he was exactly where the Lord wanted him. He was in God's will. And if you're in God's will and God is good, as the Bible says, well, then we know that he's given us the best. Notice you can't teach the health and wealth doctrine from this verse, right? Where the health and wealth doctrine says, don't be content with such things as you have, but you need to love money, and God is going to give you lots of money, and so you just need to have a lot of faith and pursue that, and God's going to give you that Lexus. God's going to give you that health. God's going to give you that life, the best life now, the life that you don't even have, that you just need to keep going. And they get all fired up. Yeah. The writer of Hebrews writes them and says, hey, guys, you haven't read chapter 13, huh? <laughs> Be content with such things as you have. You have the Lord. What else do you need? You're walking in his will. Stop coveting other things. And so, verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So now the writer moves on to encouraging the readers to remember those men who are in pastoral leadership. The role of these men were to lead the church and to teach them the word of God. Now the response of the church is to follow their teachings and their example, knowing the outcome of their faith, which is ultimately to serve Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the eternal Son. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's the basis of Christian ministry. It's to love the sheep, to lead the sheep, to minister and watch over the sheep, but to feed them the Word of God. And if a person is walking in that, well, then the Bible says that we should follow their example. Because ultimately it points to Jesus when a person's ministering as, as God calls them. Verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace. Not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So in contrast to the true faith and true teaching which points to Jesus. Is various and strange doctrines. These doctrines 
I believe, are extra-biblical teachings and practices that distract the believer from Jesus. And so it can be anything. You know, it could be anything. Anything that distracts you from Jesus. Anything that is contrary and extra-biblical to the Word of God. And sadly, people get all into that. You know, it's like they get onto everything besides what's actually in the Bible themselves. Whether it's experiences or whether it's some some doctrine that they take from like one word and then all of a sudden, man, they spin it off into like a whole theology where it's like they're so, they're so consumed with that theology that they're you know, not really concerned with just going through the Bible and just learning about the Lord. The writer says, hey, no, focus on the word of God. It's good to be established by grace. It's good to go into the word and allow the Lord to dig you deeper and deeper into his grace. In contrast to walking in grace is to live your life in legalism. And that's where these believers were. They were tempted to go back to legalism. It says, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. And so these guys were Hebrews. They were Jews. And they were tempted, as most Jews were, to return back to what's called uh, you know, the Judaizer teaching. Which is that a person would you know, walk with the Lord and be... you know please the Lord based on the rituals they keep. The Galatians also struggled with this as well. There was these different teachers who were former Pharisees and they got saved. They came to the Gentile believers in Galatia and they said, hey guys, if you guys are going to be true believers, well then you guys need to become Jews and return to the law. And that would mean following all the rituals of the law. And if you do those things, well then you're going to please God and you'll be blessed. And Paul wrote to them in Galatians and says, no, you're established by grace. You're saved by grace. God loves you by grace through faith alone. You don't have to return to law. That's legalism. And so the writer says, hey guys, beware of those teachings that would teach you that you have to please God by some outward work or by some outward legalistic teaching or tradition. But as you walk in the word of God, you realize that your heart is established by grace. And it's only by grace that a person is saved and pleases God. So we, you know, we're to walk in those things. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. So the writer again now is comparing Christianity with Judaism. That's kind of been the theme throughout this book, right? So far we've seen that Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's um, greater than Aaron and the priesthood. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's, you know, greater than the temple and all of Judaism. Now he points to the altar, now, and he says that, oh yeah, by the way, there's an altar that we have that even the priests who were born from the tribe of Levi, from the family of Aaron, they, weren't, they aren't allowed by their physical birth to eat of that altar. But only we are. That's referring to our, of the fact of being born again. And so, just because a person is born of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron, just because they keep the law, doesn't necessarily mean that they can come and partake of this altar which is in heaven where Christ is. A person must be born again. They need to give their life to Jesus. And if a person will become born again, then, then they can enjoy the blessings and participation of this altar with the Lord. Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, 
but we seek the one to come. And so the focus here is on sacrifices. He's referring back to the Old Testament. And this time he's referring to the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice that was offered on that day. The Day of Atonement was a special day for Israel. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. On that day, that's when God made atonement or covered the sins of the nation for that year. And so what the priest would do is he would take a sacrifice and it would be sacrificed. And that blood would be taken and it would go into the Holy of Holies. And there on the altar, on the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, he would sprinkle that and make atonement for the people. After he did that, then he was to take that sacrifice and take it outside the camp and the entire body would be burned as an offering to the Lord. Now, the previous verse in, in verse 10 talked about, you know, the, the priest could partake of those offerings from the altar. They can eat of those things. And so, you know, with the other sacrifices and things, you know, the priest had, a, they could partake of it. They could also take a, part, a portion of the meat. You know, that's kind of how they lived. That was their, their pay for doing the work of the Lord. You know, and then they would take part of that. They would burn it as an offering, but then they would have that meat for themselves. But on the Day of Atonement, for that offering, nothing can be touched from it. The entire animal would have to be taken outside of the gate and burned. Only the blood was sprinkled in there. And the writer says that's actually a picture of Jesus. Because Jesus, his body was crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem. Outside of there on Mount Golgotha, which we call Calvary. And so he takes that and then he moves it even further. Now it's an application to you and I as believers. He says, therefore, since Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem, bearing the reproach of our sins, we also are to go outside of the camp bearing his reproach. Now the camp here is referring to Judaism itself. As the, and, and so, you know, these guys were tempted to go back to Judaism to remain in the camp of Israel and you know, the, the teachings of Judaism. And the writer says, no, remember Jesus, he went outside of the city of Jerusalem. He bore the reproach to die for your sins. You guys need to also make the final break from Judaism. And if that means bearing reproach, then that means bearing reproach. Don't look back to the earthly city of Jerusalem. Don't look back to the physical temple, but rather look forward to Jesus who's in heaven and that heavenly city, which will continue on. That's the one we seek. He said, we have no, no continuing city here. He's talking about Jerusalem. But we seek one to come. That's the, the new Jerusalem, which will come. And so he's always trying to take their mind off the physical, off the earthly temple and Judaism and, and city, and point them to Jesus and the true tabernacle, which is in heaven, that's going to come in the new Jerusalem. Verse 15, therefore, by him, let us continue to offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is... The fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But we do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And so, just as there is no physical altar, our altar is in heaven with the Lord. Just as we seek a heavenly city, right, which comes down from above. Even so, there is no more physical sacrifices, but now we offer them spiritually to the Lord. We're given a number of sacrifices in the New Testament that we can offer as believers to the Lord. One is Romans 12 that we talked about earlier, right? Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. So that's a sacrifice that you can offer to God daily by presenting your life set apart from the world. The writer in, um, or uh, Paul in 
Second Corinthians talks about offering our physical resources to the Lord, giving to the Lord. That is also a, an offering that we can give to God, a sacrifice. Now, two more things are mentioned in these verses. Verse 15 says that we are to continually offer to God the sacrifice of prayer and praise. And so as we give God the fruit of our lips, as we praise him, whether by prayer or praise, we're actually offering to God a sacrifice. Now, I like that he says it's giving thanks to his name. That's the basis of it. So it doesn't mean that you have to pray really well or know these big King James words, oh, thou heavenliest, mightiest, benevolent creator. You know, it's like, you know, sometimes when we, when we pray and we don't hear people saying like, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We're like, man, I'm not doing very good. I, I need to start working it up a little bit. And then you, heard, you know, start hearing people say, yes, Lord. Then you're like, okay, now I'm doing good. I kind of hit that vein there, right? And now I'm praying. God must be really pleased and, you know, powerful prayer. No, it, you don't have to know great words to pray. You just need to talk to the Lord. And what about singing? I love that even more because I can't sing at all. Sometimes I'll, I'll sit in the back, you know, of the, of the church, you know, you know the, the foyer in there. You know, I like when they open up the doors because you can't really hear me that much. But, you know, there's only two rows back there, you know, with the TVs. And so I'll, I'll see and I'll hear myself. I'm like, man, I'm terrible. But, oh, well, you know, kind of thing. That's why I like in the sanctuary where it's loud. You know, it's, I can't hear myself at all. And let, let's me sing even louder. Then I think I sound good. I'll be like, I'm really getting into this. You know, so the whole basis of prayer and praise is your heart. You're just giving thanks to his name. And so if you can give thanks to his name with however you pray, whether you know great words or not, whether you say um after every other word or, or whatever, whether you're eloquent, the Lord's pleased, or whether you can sing it all, or whether you kind of just sing real low underneath your breath, right? Hey, the Lord is pleased by it because you're giving thanks to his name. It's a sacrifice. Verse 16 reminds us not to forget of the importance of the benevolence sacrifices in the body of Christ. Benevolence is showing compassion through physical means to others that are in need. The writer says, this is good and well-pleasing to God. We're not to forget about that. And so that's another thing that we can do as we minister to others, maybe it's through the meal ministry or whether it's, you know, through someone who needs some support or our blankets or whatever it might be. As we give that to others, the Lord recognizes that. And that's like offering a sacrifice in the Old Testament. I love those illustrations in the Old Testament where the person offered the sacrifice and the smoke went up and it was a sign of how it went up to heaven and God was well pleased with it. Well, spiritually now, as we offer these sacrifices to God, man, we're smoking. So now when you're singing to the Lord, just, I think I see my own breath, you know, kind of thing. We're, we're praising God. It's a sacrifice ascending to heaven. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls and those who must give an account and let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And so now notice the writer here again points the readers to the admonition to submit to their leadership. Notice he says it three times in this chapter. Verse 7, verse 17, and also in verse 24. So it sounds like something that really needed to be addressed in that church. These believers needed to submit to and follow their leadership. Now it is a principle in the New Testament that God has raised up men in the fellowship to lead. And while while these men are just like any other normal believer, God has given them the responsibility and the calling to lead and to feed the flock. Now we as believers are to recognize that 
And we do so by trusting the Lord, that they're hearing from the Lord, and that they're leading the flock. And, and the writer also gets real specific. He says that we're to obey them. Obey means that we're to assent, or to assent to the direction of our leadership. Meaning that, you know, if, if, if we believe that they're being led by the Lord and that they're called to lead, well, then we should allow them to lead. Also, we're to, um, we're to assent to them, but, but also we're to yield if we need to. That, you know, so we're to trust, we're to be submissive, which means to yield, even if it's contrary to our own opinion. You might not always agree with everything that, that is done, but if you recognize that our leaders are being led by the Lord, well, then you can obey it and you can submit to it because you know that it's the Lord behind it. He's the one, it's his church. He's the one leading the leaders. Believers are to recognize these things and trust them. They have a very important ministry, so you need to pray for the leaders because they have to give an account for their faithfulness of their ministry to God when they stand in front of him. So the Bible is real clear. He says, hey, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you're going to receive a stricter judgment. And then the writer here says, oh, yeah, by the way, pastors and teachers, they're going to give an account for their ministry and how faithful they were before the Lord. And so that's why we can pray for them. That what you know. That's why we can trust because the Lord is gonna, the Lord is gonna work. The Lord is gonna move His flock. We can trust that. The writer says, "Let God's servants lead with joy. Don't give them grief. <laughs> it's not beneficial to be contentious or difficult. In the long run, it only hurts you and hinders your relationship with the Lord." It's basically what the writer is saying. He says, "Hey, listen, just, it's not beneficial." Because it's only going to hurt you and it's only going to hurt the body. Now, second, verses 18 to 25, we have the benediction and farewell of God's faithful servant. He says, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. The writer, whoever he was, we don't know, we're not told who the writer was, asked for prayer for himself and this group that he was with. He urged them to do this because he wanted to be restored to them the sooner. Now notice here, the writer believed in the power of prayer. He believed that since there were obstacles in his way, he was confident that through the believer's prayer, God could move these obstacles and get him him there sooner. As he walked in the Lord's will, he believed that God could work through prayer. We're to believe the same. That's the the teaching of the New Testament. That God works through prayer. As we pray, the Lord moves. Sometimes he doesn't move like we want him to move. We think God should do other things. We're like, God, if I was God, I would do this. (laughs) You're not, which is a good thing, right? It'd be kind of scary if you were God. You know, but, but the Lord knows. And so ultimately he's in control. But the Lord does choose to use prayer to work, And so we need to pray for God's servants, pray for missionaries, pray for people who are sick. Because God can move and he, and he will move if it's according to his will. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought, you, or who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, making complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And there's a lot of doctrine packed in these verses. 
We're told here about the nature of God. We're told that he's a God of peace. God wants peace with the sinner. He's done that through the cross to make peace with man so man can be saved and have peace with them. Also, as we walk with him, he wants to give us peace. He's the God of all peace. He'll give us peace that passes understanding. We see the power of God in these verses. We see that God was able to predict Jesus' death and resurrection, but then he was able to do it. He said, I'm going to tell you before it happens, and then I'm going to raise Jesus from the dead so you can see my power. He's the God who raised him from the dead. We see the nature of Jesus. He is the Lord. He's the great shepherd. He's the savior of all mankind. He's the mediator of the new covenant. We see the nature of salvation. Through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, God is able to save us and mature us so that we can walk in those good and acceptable works that he has ordained for us. So notice our salvation will produce these acceptable works. And so as we talk about acceptable service, you don't have to be worried that you're not going to have the power to do it. Because if you're saved, it's by God's grace. And God, through his grace, is going to produce these works in your life, actually. You never walk up to a fruit tree and see it shaking, really struggling, right? No, it just naturally bears fruit as it abides, right? As it gets... The, the nutrients. And even so, the believer, as we're established in God's grace, as our heart is established in God's grace, God is going to bear these works in our life. Now, we still have to yield our will to those things, right? We have to say no to the flesh and yes to the Lord, follow his word and walk in wisdom and things like that. But the Lord is going to produce these things. And that's what the writer says here. Based on the fact that we're saved by grace and that the Lord will produce these things through Christ by grace. He can say it is to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If salvation was based on you, if your walk with the Lord was dependent upon you, he can say, man, to Jake be the glory forever and ever. He's, he's the man kind of thing, right? No, but he says to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's God who's the one who does the work. We only rest in that and praise him right for it. Verse 22, and I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I've written to you in few words. So the writer now encourages them. He said, hey, guys, I've written to you this book. And oh, yeah, by the way, it's in a few words. <laughs> you know, we read the book of Hebrews. And we're like, wow, that's deep. It's only a few words, he says. He could have just kept going on. But it was in a few words. And those few words were the selected words of the Lord that the Lord wanted him to speak. They were to hear these things of the Lord are from the Lord and apply them to our life. They were to trust in them. Know this, the Bible, it's really few words when you think about it. The fact that it, is, that it encompasses all of human history. There's a lot of other stuff that went on, right, in history. People say, well, what about this or that? that? Well, the Bible is very selective. It's a very narrow book. It only focuses on Jesus. It shows us the plan of God's redemption. It focuses on the bloodline of the Messiah from, from Adam Right to, to Seth, to Shem, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Judah. And then through that line, through the bloodline of Nathan, through David, to, to Jesus. And then the life of Jesus. So it's, it's a narrow book. But the words that we have, the few words that we do have in these 66 books of the Bible, is all we need for life and godliness. So we just need to heed those things that are said, those few words. I think it was Mark Twain who said, it's not the things that I don't know that trouble me, it's the things that I do know that trouble me, right? So we're to, to heed these things. We don't have to climb up to a mountain and find new extra-biblical teachings. 
we have the word of God and all that we need right here. We just get into it and follow it. Verse 23, know that our brother Timothy has been set free. Woo-hoo. With whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. So the writer was encouraged and encouraged them that Timothy had been set free. Maybe they were praying for him. And, but, he, you know, but he hoped to hook up with him soon and come to them. Now the writer now gives them his farewell, peace out kind of thing. He said, hey, pray for us. And, you know, and, and I greet all those leadership and you know, all, all those folks with you. Those of us from Italy greet you. And so the writer was probably in Italy at this time when he wrote this letter. Um, and so he, he greets them. And now he ends this book with the most important saying of all, grace be with you all. Amen. It's the grace of God from beginning to end in the Christian life. In closing, from this entire book, as we step back from it, God wants us to move forward in our walk with him. There's a lot of compromises that we can make along the way. There's a lot of detours that we can take. There's a lot of temptations to get off the trail or even stop. But the Lord wants us to press forward. If we're willing to press forward, the grace that began with us will continue with us to accomplish those good works that the Lord has for us in the end. Amen.